2: If you have your Bibles today, I'd like you to get them out to the book of Philippians, and we're going to turn right over to Philippians chapter 1. I'm reminded what that great Bible teacher, J. Vernon McGee, used to say. He'd say, flip over to Philippians. So when you hear Philippians, you flip your Bible over to the book of Philippians. And we're going to look at chapter 1, and I'm here to tell you that we're going to be here for a while as we go through the book of Philippians, but not a while today. I'm going to kind of compartmentalize this material, and I hope it really helps you. We're going to begin a series in the book of Philippians at the beginning of it, and we're calling it, Where Joy Begins in Your Life. And we're going to take as many weeks as we need to, to carefully digest this passage of scripture so we could know it, know how to apply it, and then live it for the glory of God. In my research for this material, I came across some quotes of men in their lives that had great joy. One of them was a great musician by the name of Haydn, and he was once asked the question, Why his music was so cheerful when he played and others would play his music. And he replied, when I think upon my God, my heart is so full of joy that the notes dance and leap as it were from my pen. And since God has given me a cheerful heart, it will be that I serve him with a cheerful heart. Man, if you don't get anything out of my message, you're going to find that that's exactly where it is. That we have a cheerful heart and we want to serve him with a cheerful heart. Another one was involved in education. He was known as Principal Ramey. And this particular individual was once, uh, or a child once remarked that this child believed that her principal went to heaven every night because the principal was so happy every day. And so then they got thinking about a fine metaphor. And here's what the principal said. Homeschooling moms and dads, you might want to think about this. Here's what the principal said. Joy, he said, is the flag which is flown from the castle of the heart when the king of kings is present. Isn't that true? When you've got joy, then you know in your heart you're flying that flag of joy because Jesus Christ reigns in your heart. Spurgeon, he had a way of words. He was such a, I guess you would say, prince of preachers, pastor of pastors. He had a group of preacher boys that he was preparing to launch into ministry as pastors. And in his class, he was emphasizing the importance of facial expressions when these guys would preach. And he said, Your facial expression needs to harmonize with the text that you're preaching. And I thought that's pretty good. And here's what he said When you speak of heaven, he said, Light your face up. Let it be radiated with heavenly gleam. Let your eyes shine with reflected glory. And he says, But when you preach on hell, well, then your ordinary face will do. I thought that's just typical Spurgeon, isn't it? And so sometimes you can really tell what's going on inside of a person as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And so if you're filled with joy and that spirit of God is controlling you, that joy is going to effervesce all around you. So some people say, well, where can this joy be found? Well, in my research, I came across some folks that were looking for joy because they wanted that joy. Unfortunately, they didn't go to the Bible. They didn't go to the real source of joy. And so they thought that you really can't have joy. The best way to have joy is not to believe anything. So they lived in a world of of unbelief, we might say. Certainly you don't want to believe in God because he's a killjoy. He's He's going to rain on your parade. Well, Voltaire was a man that was known as a great infidel. He denied God, denied the Bible, denied the existence of the Creator. And here's what he wrote. He said, I wish I had never been born. And there's a man who pursued unbelief. There was no joy. And then at the end of his life, he said, I wish I never was born. His life was worthless. And then there are people that will pursue a lot of pleasure. They think the more that I can do and I can experience, and you can think about it, all you've got to do is watch entertainment at night on your television. You can hear about all these starlets that they, they get involved in all that pleasure. Well, many years ago, there was a man by the name of Lloyd Byron, and he lived as much in pleasure as anyone did. He had all the wherewithal, the money, and the opportunity. And he wrote this. He said, the worm, the canker, and even grief are mine alone. Basically saying that all the grief that's out there belongs to me, and yet he could have all the pleasure and he didn't find it. And then I'm thinking about money. I'm thinking about Bill Gates. What would you do if you had a million dollars? You ever thought about that if you were a millionaire? What would you do? Well, there was a person that pursued that money. His name was Jay Gould. At one time, he was America's most wealthiest man many years ago. He had plenty of it. And when he died, he said this, I suppose even with all the wealth that I had, I am the most miserable man on the earth. And when I thought about that, I thought of the richest man that ever lived. His name was Solomon. And he said, whatever my eyes saw, I kept not from them. He had all the money, all the power to get whatever he wanted. And he said, yet at the end of my life, he said, it's still nothing but emptiness and vanity. So we could be looking for joy in a lot of places, unbelief, pleasure, money. How about position or fame? I'm thinking again of either movie stars or athletes, those that seem to see their name in lights a lot, There was another man by the name of Lord Baconsfield, and he enjoyed more than his share of all that. And he wrote, and kids, I hope you understand this, he said, youth is a mistake, manhood is a struggle, and old age is a regret. So basically what he was saying is there was no joy in youth, no joy in manhood, no joy in old age. He said there was no joy at all. And then how about a military glory? You know, some people think, because we have a lot of military folks in our church, I'm sure you're not thinking this, but you may have those that are pursuing up that ladder of getting all that they can to climb it up, to get all the different type of military accolades that they can. Probably one of uh, the world's greatest conqueror was Alexander the Great. He conquered the known world in his lifetime, and having done so, he went into his tent and he wept, and he said, there are no more worlds for me to conquer. So even though he was pursuing the conquering of the entire world, even having all that power and the ability to wipe out other nations, he said there was no joy in that. So where is our joy to be found? Well, you're going to find in the next uh, perhaps months, maybe this year as we study Philippians, that our joy is singularly only going to be found in Jesus Christ. And it doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to have constant happiness or constant gladness in our life. But we can say we can have constant joy as we dig deep into the Lord. If you'll notice, our primary verse for our entire study is found in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. It's our theme of this letter that Paul wrote to this church at Philippi, and it's the same theme that he would be writing to us today. And he said this, Rejoice in the Lord always. You know, that's a great passage. Rejoice where? In the Lord. When? always. Then he goes on and he hammers it again one more time to drill it deep. And he says, and again, I'll say rejoice. And so we're going to learn where does this joy come from and how that we can have joy in our life. And perhaps by that joy, bring glory to the Lord and affect others with it as well. Well, since joy is so important and we find the words rejoice and joyful and joy and gladness in scripture alone, here's what I found just to show you that our God is not a God that's very down, that he's a God, he will condemn sin, he is a holy God, he does grieve when we sin, but he's also a God that's full of joy and he wants us to be full of joy as well. Here's what I found, the verb rejoice is found 96 times in the New Testament alone. The word joy, the noun of that, is found 59 times in the New Testament for a total of 155 times. Then if you look in the book of Philippians alone, you're going to find it found some 16 times if I add the word gladness to it. So Paul, in this little four-chapter verse, it's just bursting with the flavor and the excitement and the celebration of joy. And so we're going to learn about that as we move forward. But you need to know some of the background. The question is, is, it's easy to be happy when things are going well. We get a good report from the doctor. We have more money at the end of our month than we started with. Our kids are not in jail, so to speak. Things are going well in our life. Things are really pumping for us. I want you to know this, that even when that happens, the Apostle Paul was at a time in his life that it wasn't the external that brought him all that joy. In fact, we know that he was in jail at that time. In fact, he, we believe is was with the Praetorian Guard. He was kept in what we might call a form of a prison. Some people say the Mamertine Dungeon. There's some debate on that. The one point we do know is that Paul could not go where he wanted to go, when he wanted to go, how often he wanted to go. He was trapped. And yet, in the midst of that entrapment, where he was, he still had joy. Now, here's my question to you. Think about your own world. Are you in some form of feeling like you're entrapped or in prison? It could be because of finances. You can't do the things you want to do and you feel like those debt collectors are knocking at the door. Maybe you're trapped because of some health, and as we get older, we don't uh, have as much energy, and we start going to the doctor more, and we start falling apart, and so you feel like you're trapped in a body that's deteriorating. Some of you might even feel trapped in a relationship that you wish was either better or would get different or get gone. You just feel like you're trapped. Or a job. You'd love to get out of that job, but you can't get out of that job because you don't have the economics to do that or a place to go. You feel trapped. Trapped. So, maybe the question would be Do you feel trapped? Do you feel like uh, you're in a job that you cannot control in an entrapment or a situation? And maybe one that wasn't even thrust on you. Sometimes we're in these problems because we made the wrong choices willfully and we're in this bondage. Sometimes we're not. It just flat happened to us. In either case, God says that we can still have joy. And I'd like to show you from God's word that Paul was like that. He was sharing the gospel, doing what he was supposed to do for the Lord. And therefore, they brought him and threw him in jail, we might say. So it was thrust upon him for doing that which was right. And so those of you that are in bondage maybe right now to something, could be that you've done the best you can and you just can't get out of it. But I want you to know that you can still have the joy. God says that that's available for us. So as I looked at this study, what made this such an exciting letter for Paul to write? And from my imagination, I came up with three. And here's my three. First of all, it's a very practical letter. Paul gives some very practical insights. So if you're thinking about this book being a very heavy theological book, there's always theology in the Bible because of systematic theology, but there's gonna be some very practical teaching, things that you can learn and apply before you uh, get home this afternoon, perhaps. Secondly, it's a personal book. As you read through Philippians, you're gonna find names mentioned in here. You're gonna find a lot of personal pronouns. So we're gonna call it a relational book. Some of you people are wired by God to really kind of get relational. And you're going to find it very easy to connect to this book because Paul is really connecting relationships. And then the third is one we've kind of alluded to. It's a very positive book. He is not really condemning any particular sin here. He's not really jumping on the people like he did with the, when he wrote a letter to the people in Corinth. There's one time he kind of talked to some ladies about maybe having a little bit of uh, you know, problems with each other. But for the most part, it was a very positive book. So we're going to look at a book that's practical, personal, and positive for us. Now. Let's talk about how a book gets started in the New Testament, and why does it begin with usually the person who is sending the book, they put their name first. Now, if you're like our house, when when we go to get the mail, we get our mail at the downtown post office. So Carol usually jumps out of the car, runs and gets the mail, and while I'm driving to go back home, she's going through the mail, and she's dividing up the mail, and so here it is, Stan, that's your pile, Carol, that's my pile, occupant. Well, who wants that one, you know? So we kind of divide it all up. And once they're all divided, then we look at, who do they come from? If it's one of those mass marketing people, we don't even open that. Even though our name might be on it, we'll put that in the pile to chuck. And then we have some that might be written from you or from some people in the mainland or from some friends, or maybe it's a bill, but we know it's it's an important letter. And then we open it up and we find out why did they write to us. And so we look at who's it to, who's it from, and why it's written. However, in the Bible days, the mail didn't come like that. In fact, when there was a a post, we might say, or information sent, it was usually sent looking something like this. Now, this is about as close as I can get it at the last minute. It looked about like this. Now, I didn't bring up any of that stuff you usually have in your restroom, but this is a a roll, a scroll, we might say. Now, if the letters were similar to what we would have today, generally, you write at the beginning of the letter, dear so-and-so, and then you write what you want to write, and at the end of the letter, you're going to say love or yours truly or in Christ or whatever, and you'll sign your name. If it was in the Bible days and Paul wrote a letter and he wrote it to the people of Philippi and he says, dear beloved at Philippi, and he writes this letter, but we don't know who it's to. And then he writes all this stuff and he signed his name at the bottom. We'd have to take this role. And it arrived at the church at International they in Honolulu, and I would have to, and I won't do that, but you'd have to roll this thing out and run all the way to the end of the letter to find out where it's from, so it would be called a scroll, so it's not really a roll. How many of you use your computer for email? Would you raise your hand? How many of you use your computer for email? All right. Two things about email that is a little closer to the scroll. No, it's not a roll, but it is similar. If you use Outlook Express, which I use, it's, I'm not promoting it, I'm just saying that's, it's simple for simple people. That's why I use it. All right, now when you look at it, it's generally going to say, not on your headline when it comes in, but when you open up that email, it's going to say, first of all, from whom it's, then it's going to tell you who it's to, and then instead of the word, um, oh, maybe reason, it'll say the word subject. So it'll say from, to, and then subject. And something else that's interesting, when you open your email and you know that it's a long email, you take your cursor. Now, some of you that aren't into email, this is so foreign to you. And you hit it and you want to kind of come down the page. What is that phrase in in, uh, email language when you say, I want to come down the page? What is that? I want to scroll down the page. So you want to kind of come to the end of it. So these would often in the Bible days be known as what? Scrolls. And we kind of perhaps got that term from it. We're going to scroll down because it's a scroll. And I'm saying all that to say this, when you are studying the Bible, and those of you that are new, and I, I'm learning from our men's study that we've got some neat guys in there that are, some are very new in the faith, and they're just learning about the Bible. Carol's got a group of, of gals that are really hungry for the word, but they're kind of um, like, wow, I didn't know the Bible said that. So for some of you folks that have been around a while, use this as a reminder. But in the Bible days, it's always good for you to understand what was going on. Then you have to understand, why was this written? Who wrote it? To whom was it written? What was the purpose? So let me kind of give you that at this stage of the game. So the first thing you want to look at, first of all, would be, who are the writers of the book of Philippians? Who are the writers? That's a good question. So who wrote it? So let me be real technical. So if you play Bible trivia sometime and they ask you the question, who's the author of Philippians? The answer is not Paul, okay? The author of the book of Philippians is whom, everyone? God, okay, now if you really want to be specific, it'll be more inclined to be the Holy Spirit because the Word of God is what we call in-breathe, and that's kind of a term often used to the Holy Spirit, it was inspired. So the Holy Spirit is very much involved in the authorship with the Trinity, all right, the deity, so they're the real authors. Now we back it down a little bit, and so this in-breathing that was given to the folks that were going to now write this, then those people are called the writers, In this case, it's primarily going to be Paul, but he had a helper with him, and his name was Timothy. So you had Paul and Timothy, although the primary writer of this letter is Paul. Now those of you who don't know who Paul is, you hear that name thrown out a lot, you might watch a TV show and the name Paul is there. Let me give you just some background with Paul. Paul was a a, a man's Jew or a Jew man. He, He was a man's man all the way. He studied under the right teachers. He knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards. He arrived at a certain elite group that he could become a part of because of his knowledge and of his heritage. He goes all the way back to a tribe that was very special to God. So you see, this is Paul. And then because of his zeal for, watch this now, for God, at a time he was alive, the people were killing people known as Christians because they thought that Christians were anti-God. So he got to be a part of that group that were looking for men and women and teenagers and boys and girls that believed in Jesus Christ as Savior, worshiped the Lord, and so he went out after them to throw them into prison and to persecute them. In fact, he was even present when there was a man in the Bible who loved the Lord with all of his heart, his name was Stephen, was killed, and when he was killed, he held the clothes of those that were stoning him to death. That's how zealous he was for God. But then he was traveling to go pick up some more people to persecute them. And all of a sudden, it was a bright light, so bright, brighter than the sun, noticeably different, so bright, that he fell down. And that was a time that God, in his own special way with Paul, made himself known through Christ. And he came to faith in Christ. He was blind, and he had to go a little bit further before the Lord allowed him to have his eyesight back again. But boy, when he came to faith in Jesus Christ, and he got his head on straight with the Bible... I'm going to tell you that he immediately surrendered to the Lord, to the Lord of his life. And he just took off for God at that time. Well, when he did, he was so zealous, he was telling everybody, particularly Jews, particularly go from city to city, going into synagogues everywhere. Anybody would listen to him. And of course, in those days, because it was still this feeling of anti-Christians, all right. he then wound up in jail, and then he wrote this. Now, where does Timothy come involved in this? Timothy comes involved because in the midst of his zeal for the Lord now, not just God, he believed it was important to not only publicly proclaim the faith, but also to work with people after they've come to faith in Christ and to, here's a word, disciple them. Sometimes today we'll use the word mentor, sometimes we we'll use the word counsel, sometimes we'll use the word train, but disciple is the biblical word. So he discipled a young man by the name of Timothy. Now Timothy was kind of neat because he was what we might call a half-breed. All right, He was kind of half-Jewish and half-Gentile. We don't know much about his father. And so Paul took him under his wings and really worked with him. Like some of you young guys over here are being worked with, with Pastor Dennis. And some of you other guys are involved in disciple-making ministries. So you'd be like the Paul, and you've got your Timothy. And then the rest of us are kind of like the Barnabases. We're kind of supporting you. So now his protege. So he took Timothy wherever he went, discipled him, and I think even mentored him in ministry behind the scenes. And so that was going on. So those would be the writers. So the author is God, the Holy Spirit, and then we see the writers being Paul and Timothy. Well, that brings us to the next one. So we see the writer first, then we see the readers. The readers would be the ones, we could also use the word receivers. Who received this uh, old uh, letter, we might say, this old scroll? Well, who did it? Well, I'm going to submit to you different groups of people, and I'll try to identify it more specifically, all right? First of all, he wrote it to the people at Philippi. Now, those of you that were with us last week, we kind of drew up invisibly up here on this uh, invisible screen where Philippi was. We knew that it was an important city. It was a city that was on a crossroads of trade. It was very important to the whole Roman Empire at the time. And that being the case, it was a strategic place where God said, don't go other places to preach the gospel. I need you right now in Philippi. So he sent a message through a Macedonian speaker to him, and he said he went into Philippi, and he found a group of ladies that were worshiping on a Saturday near the riverbank, and he led them to Christ. So the believers in Philippi. Now, if you want to, those of you that want a little bit more, who were the believers in Philippi that he was now writing back to? He is writing it to a lady by the name of Lydia and her family, And we know that she came from another location, so she might have gone home and not stayed in Philippi. She might have stayed there. She might come there on business trips. Who knows? She was there, part of the church, more than likely. But then I also believe more confidently that there was a jailer that came to faith in Christ and his family. So now he's now writing back to the jailer that's in that. Then there was a little girl, I don't know how little, but a young girl that was demon-possessed. And Paul then said, I had enough of all the shenanigans from you, and he cast that demon out through Jesus Christ. So now you have Lydia and her family. You have a little demon-possessed gal that's now a believer in Christ. You have the jailer and his family. So now you have a businesswoman. You have some civil servants. And I could only believe, now this is between the lines, that some of those people were already starting to lead others to Christ and there was a little church there coming to form. And now Paul is now writing back to them and he's excited. Now, when we go further in the study, you're gonna see some neat things about this little church with all these different kind of personalities, different type of ethnic groups, different type of economic groups in this thing that came together and how they blessed this great man, Paul. But there's also another group. It seems like this church really grew fast and grew strong in the Lord because the other group would be elders and deacons. And in the coming weeks, I'm gonna slow our study down in Philippians because I think it's an appropriate time to us to unpack the concept about elders. Now, here's what else I gained from our study with the guys last week. The guys were talking about their background of their belief, and what I did hear a lot was how many of them came from a Roman Catholic background with the Roman Catholic background, they have what you might call church polity, church government. You've got the Pope and the Cardinals and bishops and all of this stuff. And I got thinking, well, some of them have heard a lot of those words and they may be transferring that into a Christian belief system. And so what's right and what's not. Some of you might come out of an Episcopal background. Some of you might even be connected to an African-American system where they have bishops. And so what I want to do, is I want to talk more about churches and elders. You have a plurality. What's the difference between an elder and a pastor and a shepherd and a bishop? And We're going to talk about that. And then the next week, we're going to talk about deacons. We're going to find out, is there a difference between the two? What are the qualifications? What are their responsibilities? And I'll explain why you need to know that next week as we launch that. But I want you to know those are the readers, the believers, the elders, and the deacons. And then I'd like to throw one other in there. Is because this is in the closed canon of Scripture. God wants us to read this book. And so I'm going to ask you that every week that you read, and those of you that want to go to another level, let me encourage you to read ahead every week, and then read back from where I've already covered. So you could be saturated in this. I remember when I was in Bible college, different people were teaching different courses, a very large uh, Bible college. And one of my dear friends, Mike, was teaching this class on the prison epistles. And the prison epistles are Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, primarily those three. And he went verse by verse and he did a great job, a whole year study. And then he gave the assignment to the students of what their final exam was going to look like. And I was uh, interested to hear how he was going to play this thing out. Are you going to do a thing like you might talk about who the writers are, what's the purpose of the book, what are the main thoughts, how do you outline it, and all that stuff? All he did was one thing for the students he said, You need to memorize the book of Philippians word perfect. And when we launch that particular final exam, you're going to a blank sheet of paper and you have got to write the book of Philippians word perfect in order for you to pass the class you should have seen the student body and he had about 150 students for the rest of that time preparing for their final exam all over the campus they're all memorizing they got their study buddies their prayer partners working on this together well guess what I'm not going to make you have to memorize the book but I encourage you to do that. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. So those would be the readers. Now, here's a question. What would be the reason that the person would write you a letter? Isn't it interesting when a person writes you a letter or a note or an email and you see who it's from and you know it's addressed to you? How many of you see who it's from, you know it's addressed to you, it's someone that you know, and then you take that letter and you throw it away and you never read it? How many of you are like that? How many of you have ever done this? You deleted that letter before you read it on your email, and you say, it's gone, and you've got to go find it somewhere in your email system. That's happened to you. Well, in this case, there are some reasons. And as a great Bible scholar, one of the great commentators, William Hendrickson, and I recommend you maybe look through some of his material. I don't agree with all of his eschatology, but there's some great stuff he has in there. And he's concluded that if there would be the, the four mountain peaks of why did Paul write this, And I always like to know, why did he write this book? He came up with these four, and after I've gone through this, I I agree with them. These are four good reasons, and that would be maybe another reason for us to gain some insight from it. So let me give you reason number one that he gives here of why Paul might have wrote this to the church at Philippi. Number one is to give written expression of his gratitude. The key word is the word gratitude that Paul was a person. He might have been a driving, dominant individual like we see him in Scripture, but he was also one that had a tender, sensitive heart that recognized how many things were done for him by God through other people. So he really had a heart of gratitude. Look at the verses.